I'm gonna have to apologize for my voice. I had this last week and I st- I'm still have, still have it today. Uh, apparently, it doesn't want to go. But I would not. This this was a stop me from proclaiming the word of God today. Last week we started. We kicked off our series. It's called Starting the Year Right, and we talked about leaving your past behind. We talked about if we're gonna start the year right, we're gonna have to make this first step by leaving the past behind. We talked about Abram. We talked about how Abram made a huge step of stepping in faith, leaving his country, leaving his family, leaving his countrymen, leaving his legacy and inheritance so that he can accept what God is offering. Today, I'm going to talk to you about embracing your calling. Embracing your calling. Now, why is this important? Because your calling determines your purpose. And if we don't have a purpose, we will wander aimlessly. So that's why it's very important that as we start the year right, we have to be clear about our purpose so that we can start embracing our call. I think the church is full of two kinds of people. One is a convert, the other is a disciple. What do I mean by that? A convert is someone who decided to be baptized, decided to become a member of the church, and would come to church every Sunday. That's a convert. A disciple, on the other hand, has done those things, but this one has dedicated his life, his entire career, his resources, his time, his passion, his skill, and his decision reflects his total devotion to Jesus Christ. This is a disciple. See, there's a difference between a convert and a disciple. And in the church, we have both. I'm going to make this personal to you today. And I would like to think as we go through the sermon, are you a convert or a disciple? See, conversion is one step short of discipleship. You are already there. A convert says, I am here. But a disciple says, I'm here and I'm all in. See, when Jesus started this ministry, he started to heal the sick. He started to feed people multiplied bread. He started to cast out demons. And people were so surprised, so they started to follow Jesus. They say, this is the guy. This is the person I want to I follow. This is the rabbi. This is maybe the Messiah. So people started to follow him. But then Jesus started telling controversial things, like controversial claims, like, I am the bread of life. And if you, if you don't eat my flesh, you will not go to the Father. You will not go to heaven. And people started Doubting Jesus Christ. Especially, there was one in Luke chapter 14 when he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. This is a very bold claim of Jesus. So people started to freak out and they say, "Uh, Maybe Jesus is demanding too much from me. Maybe Jesus sounds like a cult leader. Maybe I I should think about if I'm going to follow him. So people started slowly stop listening to him, stop following him. Have you ever asked yourself if Jesus is asking a lot from you? Have you ever asked yourself if Jesus is demanding a lot from you, your resources, your time, your skills, your passion? Again, make this personal. As we go along with the sermon, Ask yourself, who are you? Are you a convert or are you a disciple? 
let me go to the text today. I'd like to demonstrate to you how these two concepts of being a convert to a disciple plays in the life of Moses, how he transitioned from being a convert to being a disciple. Now, you know Moses. Moses, Moses was destined to save his people. Moses was destined to save his people from Egypt. And he did that exactly that. But strangely enough, he did not start as a disciple. He started as a convert. He started without having to embrace his call. He was confused about his calling. Now, his history started 400 years way before he was born. His story started in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. God made a promise to Abraham, his forefather, 400 years before Moses. This is what God said to Abraham. He's in Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. Sojourners is wanderer or foreigner or exile. They will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now we know this. We know this pertains to Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go out to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in the good old age. And they shall come back here. He's, taught, he's telling Abraham about his offspring. Your offspring shall come back here in the fourth generation presumably that's 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So apparently what God is saying is that he is going to withhold his wrath against the people in Canaan, against the Amorites, until their sin is full, until they reach the fullness of their sins. And God will bring back the offspring of Abraham into the promised land so that they can inherit the land. Now, if you're reading your Bible, I want you to pay attention to this very carefully. I'm going to give you a macro perspective of things that are happening here. If you're reading your Bible, the story of Moses is a repetition of the story of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain murdered his brother. So the story of Moses is a repetition of the story of Cain. Now watch this. Cain murdered his brother. He went east and he became a wanderer. Are you still with me? Yes? Moses murdered an Egyptian. He fled eastward. He became a wanderer. This is a sort of repetition of stories. As a matter of fact, when Moses fled eastward, he had two sons, but he named his firstborn son Jershom. The name Jershom means, I have become an exile, or I have become a sojourner. Cain is a repetition of the story of Moses and the other way around. But there's another one. The story of Abraham is a repetition of the story of Israel. Have you been reading the book of Genesis? So when you go to the book of Genesis chapter 12, there's this story of Abraham. There was a famine. He went down to Egypt. He was stuck in Egypt because the Pharaoh held his wife hostage until God intervened. The story of Abraham was the exact same story of Israel. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his family went down to Egypt because of famine, same thing. They were stuck there because Pharaoh made slaves out of them until God intervened. It's the same thing. So if you're reading the book of Genesis, you have repetitions of stories. Now, where am I going with this? 400 years 
the people of Israel were stuck in Egypt until God intervened. And after 400 years, this is what it says in Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered this covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. Now, there are certain things here that's repeated again and again. And at this point, what the Bible is saying is that all bets are off. God is ready to pick up the tab. He's ready to pour out his wrath. The 400 years of waiting is over because the sins of the Amorites have gone to the full. And the person God chose to rescue the people of Israel was a man named Moses. Now, all we thought that Moses is in the Old Testament. But the thing is, the New Testament also speaks about Moses. There was this guy by the name of Stephen who was the first Christian martyr. And before he was stoned to death, he made a long speech. And in his speech, he mentioned Moses. Watch this, Acts 7.20. He said at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, that means he started crying out and they cannot contain him anymore. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. That means Moses knew Egyptian politics. That means he understood Egyptian economics. That means he has mastered Egyptian religion. He knows. He was mighty in words and deeds. He means he's got straight A's. He's top of the class. He knows what he's doing. He's a good orator. If there's anyone qualified right now, to save the people of Israel, it's going to be Moses. He's like a double agent. He knows both things. He knows both ways. So Stephen continued in verse 23. He said, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Why? Because he knew he was a Hebrew. He's not really an Egyptian, although he was raised in, in the courts of Egypt. So it came to his heart to visit the brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. I mean, men, you're, you're practically brothers. We're all Hebrews here. Why do you wrong each other? But the man said, who was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And why do you care? Why do you care? Why are you trying to to mediate between us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. This is the story of Moses, where he became first a convert before he became a disciple. Now, I want you to imagine Moses growing up and hearing the story of Noah and the flood. And he would hear his mother who would tell him the story of Noah and the flood that Mo, Mo, Noah built the ark and Noah saved this entire family from the flood. And, you would, and Moses would also hear his mother would say, when you were a baby, the, the Egyptian pharaoh said, 
he wants to kill all the children. So I made a basket, an ark, like, you know, Noah's ark, and put you there. I floated you to the river Nile and you were saved because you are destined to save the people of Israel. Imagine Noah growing up and hearing these things. And he's probably saying, man, I'm a hero. Someday soon, I will save my people, Israel. And so this is where one day he said, I'm going to do it. When he was 40 years old, he saw two Hebrews quarreling and he said, I'm going to save my people. And he saw an Egyptian doing injustice to his fellow men, so he killed that Egyptian. See, the story was unfolding. But the story that was unfolding was the story of Cain. He murdered the Egyptian, he fled east, and he became a wanderer. The story of Moses is a story of being a convert to being a disciple. He was a convert. He knew who he was. He knew that he's destined to do something great. But he doesn't know his calling yet. So he's banished. One day, Moses was on the mountain and he had an encounter with God. He saw the bush that was burning but it's not consumed. So he said, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see why this is not burning. So he went near and the moment he went near, a voice from God spoke from the bush. The voice of God spoke from the bush. It says, take off your sandals because you are on the holy ground. See, the holiness of God reveals everything. What that means is that we are naked in the presence of God. We cannot hide anything from God. I wonder if we acknowledge the holiness of God every time we come to God in prayer. I wonder if we acknowledge the holiness of God every time we come to church and worship God. You see, worship is a confrontation. Because when we come to worship, this is a holy ground. This is where God appears. This is where we encounter God. This is where we say, I cannot hide anything from God. I have to be real. I have to be honest with God because I am facing God. Worship is a confrontation. See, I don't know what you did last night. I don't know what you've been doing all this week. I don't know your secrets. I don't know the skeletons in the closet, but I bet you God knows What's happening in your life? God sees. There's nothing hidden from God. And when you come to church on Sunday, when you come to the holy ground, this is like, you, this is like God telling Moses, you have to remove your sandals because this is a holy ground. And the only proper response, I believe, whenever we come to God and worship is that we have to beat him with absolute honesty, with absolute transparency. The next thing that God said was he introduced himself. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Why did God have to say that? Because he was trying to give us a mental link between his promise to Abraham and his fulfillment of the promise in the time of Moses. See, this is a span of 400 years. And people would have probably thought, God has forgotten. It's been 400 years. Now, God is saying, I have not forgotten. Verse 7, it says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I want you to pay attention to the verbs that God used here. He said, I've seen the affliction. 
That means he can see. I've heard their cries. I know their sufferings, and I've come down. That's the action word. I've come down to deliver them. Now, maybe we're thinking, after 400 years, why is this the only time that God acted on his promise? Did God forget? Now, the fact that God is saying, I have seen, I have heard, I know, I have come down, this is a God who's paying attention. This is a God who never takes vacation. This is a God who takes his promises seriously. And the reason he did not act immediately, based on Genesis chapter 15, was because he was being merciful and patient with the Amorites. He was telling Abraham a while ago, I'm going to leave it for 400 years until the sins of the Amorites have come to the full. I am trying to be patient. Now, I think the reason why sometimes when we go through difficult times, we tend to focus only on the things in front of us, the trials, the temptations, the tragedies in life. But we have no way to look into the background of what's happening around us. See, this is the same thing when you go to a restaurant. All you see is the waiter and the menu and then the food in front of you. But you don't see the inside of the kitchen. You don't see the chef managing the affairs of the kitchen. You don't see the cooks and the assembly line. You don't see the stains on the walls and the oils and, you know, everything that's happening in there. All you see is the finished product, the food. You see, when we go through sufferings in life, when we go through trials, we're always looking forward. We're looking and focused on the sufferings and the trials and the temptations. We don't see what God is really doing in the background. You see, this is the same thing that's happened to the Israelites. All they saw was 400 years of suffering. But they didn't know that God was being patient, not just to them, but also to the Amorites inside the land of Canaan. And so when we pray, when we struggle, we tend to see what's in front of us, and we tend to compare ourselves with, you know, this brother and sister, they've been blessed, blessed by God. This brother so-and-so, he's thriving. Why not me? Why, why is God not kind to me? Why is God kinder to another person, another brother, another sister? Why not me? I think we have to really focus on and broaden our minds and focus on what's happening around us, not just to the life that is in front of us. Now, it took me a while to learn this lesson. But when I learned this lesson, I realized that I've been looking at God wrongly. I learned that I cannot really pressure God or bully God or nag God into giving what I desire, what I want. You see, that's what we do when we pray. When we pray, we see God as a celestial, celestial butler who's always ready to do our bidding, right? It's how we see God. We expect God to be at every beck and call. Lord, I need this today. Lord, I need this tomorrow. Lord, I need this. Please give it to me. Lord, I want this. You see, God is a wise God. God knows what he's doing, and he has a timetable. God has his own timetable, and therefore, God will respond according to his wisdom. He doesn't give you what you think you need. He gives you what he thinks you need. And sometimes when we insist, God gives it to us, but he also lets us suffer the consequences. But the good thing about this is that with Moses, his calling was definite. So when Moses killed the Egyptian, he thought that is what God wants. Now, I want you to pay attention to the following conversation with God and Moses. 
this is going to spell us his agenda and calling. The conversation went fast from inquiry to protest to objection. Now, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 says, But Moses said to God, Now the calling of Moses is clear. You will save my people Israel. All right, that, that's, that's very clear. But then his first inquiry was, Moses said to God, Whom, who I am, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. What is Moses really asking here? What Moses was asking is he's trying to specify his credentials. He's trying to be clear about his credentials. Who am I? What is my credential? I know I cannot just go to Pharaoh and speak to him because we're not on the same level. I don't have what he has. He's divine, I am not. He's king, I am not. Who am I to speak to Pharaoh? That's what Moses is trying to say to God. Now remember, at this point, Moses was a shepherd. He does not command armies. He commands sheep and goats. And so I think at this point, he's very clear about what he's trying to clarify. Who am I that I should speak to Pharaoh? But you see, one thing is very clear. I think Moses was trying to ask from a narcissistic point of view because he was still asking from his narcissistic point of view. He thought he was the savior of his people. This is not about Moses. This is about God's people, God's rescue, God's agenda. Are you still with me? I think this is the same thing what we do every day. When we know our calling, but then we are too shy to speak to people. We are too shy to speak about our testimonies. We are too shy to speak about how God's love is for us and for the other people. When you're on a plane or, or you're on a bus or you're with someone, you don't want to tell other people. You want, don't want to talk to them. Why? Because you're at the back of your mind, you're asking, who am I that I should speak to this guy? What's my credential? I'm not at par with him. See, this is not about you. This is about God. If people reject you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. Are you still with me? So God responded to Moses. He said in verse 12, but I will be with you. I mean, I'm trying to, to reflect on this. He did not give Moses a magic staff like the one with Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He did not give Moses magic spells like Leviosa, something like that in Harry Potter. He did not give Moses any supernatural abilities like the X-Men. He did not. All he said to Moses was, I will be with you. So Moses would probably be thinking, what, what is this going to do for me? What is this I will be with you going to do if I'm faced with trial or if I'm faced with temptation? What is his presence going to do if I'm speaking to Pharaoh? What is his presence going to do with me? Well, how does this work? You see, my, <clears throat> my daughter is five years old. And the first thing that she does when she wakes up in the morning is to look for mom and dad. And usually my wife brings our son to school, drop off in the morning. And so when she wakes up, she would look for mom and dad. And when she doesn't see her mom, she would see me and she would duck herself in my arms. I think my presence is good enough for her, good enough assurance that she's not alone. What I'm saying is that let's not get hung up on the supernatural powers, on the supernatural divine protection, 
or how many angels are protecting our homes. Those are not the main thing. Those are bonuses. The main thing is the presence of God is the main thing. His presence is with us. God is with us. You see, when the disciples encountered the storm in the sea, they were so hung up on the size of the waves and the strong winds, they forgot to notice one thing, that Jesus was with them. Jesus was with them in the boat. The second member in, of the Trinity was with them in the boat. And what's funny about this is in Matthew 5-7, to Jesus made a long speech, a long sermon. It's called Sermon on the Mount. And it was, he taught them a lot of things. And then in chapter 8, he healed a centurion servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cast out evil spirits until you find this one. When he rode the boat, there was a storm and they panicked. I mean, they panicked. They were inches away from the living, breathing Son of God who created the world. They panicked. Why? Because they're so focused on what's in front of them, they forgot God. Here's the interesting thing. This God who told Moses, I will be with you, is the same God who told his disciples before he went to heaven, I will be with you, Matthew 28. Do you see this? I will be with you is the greatest assurance that we can have. Not how many angels are protecting you or how many insurance you have or how many vitamins you take every day. The greatest assurance is the presence of God with us. So Moses didn't stop at his credentials. After that, he asked God his credentials. Okay, who am I? What about you? Who are you? He said in verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Moses is asking, what can you do? What is your power? What is your credentials? This is very interesting. You see, in the ancient Near East, the power and authority of a God is reflected in his name. That's why Moses was asking for God's name. He needs to know that when push comes to shove, he knows who exactly to call? The name of God. And when he come to Pharaoh and tell the people, let my people go, he knows who's God to call. That's why he's asking for God's name. Now, if I'm going to translate to you the name of God, it's going to be weird. Because there's no exact translation of the word. But if I'm going to translate it in Tagalog, I'm going to say, Basta. What's your name? Basta. It, it, it doesn't make sense. If I translate it in English, it's going to be, it is what it is. What's your name? It is what it is. Because the name that God gave to Moses is, I am who I am. Who am I? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What God simply is saying is that the name does not fully represent what he can do, how he does things, why he do things the way he does. There's a reason why, what did the Ten Commandments say? You shall not make representations of God, not make idols. Because there's nothing under the heaven, above the earth, or under the earth that can fully represent God. There's a reason why the Jews don't, do not say the name of God. They just say Hashem or the name. Because there's nothing that can fully represent God. But there are Christians who have their favorite definition of God. There are Christians who think that as long as they remain in God's good graces, as long as they can give God an inch of rule in their life, 
they're good enough. Six days for me, one day for God. 90% for me, 10% for God. Summer vacation for me, winter cold for God. My entire career for me, retirement, okay, that's going to be for God. Now that's a convert speaking, not a disciple. That's a small definition of who God is. Let me tell you this. You cannot God put in a box and expect him to function like a genie in a bottle. And that's what we do every time we pray. We summon God as if we're summoning a genie in a bottle. How do I know that? Because before, when I didn't know any better, I was doing the same thing to God. I was going to God only when I need him. Only when I need him. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you come to God in prayer and you did not ask for anything? You just want to hang out with God. You just want to have fellowship with God. When was it? When was the last time you come to God and there's no shopping list? That's what I'm saying. Your definition of God is how you approach God. Because Moses' question was geared towards what can you do for me instead of what can I do for you? So Moses stopped inquiring. He then began protesting. He said in verse chapter 4, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. You see, the last time he tried to intervene, his fellow Hebrews said we didn't like it. So he had to flee all the way to Midian, and he became a wanderer. So at this point, God gave him signs or proof. What are you going to do? What are you going to show to the people? That, that's going to that's gonna be the proof that I'm calling you. What are the signs? The first sign that God gave was the staff turning into a serpent. So God said, throw your staff, and then it will, be, it will turn into a serpent. Pick it up by the tail, and it will turn back to staff. It happened. The next sign that God gave is put your hand inside your coat, and the minute you take it out, it's going to appear like there's leprosy in it. Scaly leprosy. Put it back, voila, there's nothing. Magic. The third sign Moses had, just in case, just in case they don't believe the two, what's the next one? So God said, get a water from the Nile, water, and then pour it on the ground, it will become blood. And I was, for this week, I've been asking, I've been praying and reflecting and researching what these signs mean. And I realized this is just in front of me. You see, the only way we can understand these signs is if we make a mental link to Genesis chapter 3. Now watch this. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. And the serpent was cursed by God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said there will be an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent. There will be a battle going on. And time will come that the offspring of the woman will crush her head and you will bite his heel. That's Genesis chapter 3. So think of serpent, Genesis chapter 3. Now the first sign is about the serpent. You know, Conveniently, Pharaoh wears a headdress that has a cobra, a serpent, on his headdress. Now, let's show you Uraeus. This serpent symbolizes his power. He's the serpent. So if you think about 
make a mental link between Pharaoh in Egypt and Genesis chapter 3, immediately you will think, man, this is the, the offspring of the serpent. This is the guy who is enslaving the people of Israel. And so you, you would be thinking also that the people of Israel is the offspring of the woman. So God has promised that he will curse, Genesis chapter 12, he will curse those who curses Israel. He will bless those who blesses Israel. And at this point in the history and story, it is clear. The offspring of the woman are the Israelites. The offspring of the serpent is Pharaoh in Egypt. What about the third sign? So if, if the symbol, if the serpent, staff becoming a serpent is the symbol of Moses' authority over Pharaoh, what about the third sign? What about the blood? What about the water from the Nile turning into blood? Now, this is what I found. Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 1 to 3. It says, in the 10th year, in the 10th month, on the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, we, we don't do this anymore. We just say August 29, 1962. But this is how the language of the Bible was before. In verse 2, it says, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him, against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. That says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. What is he saying? What he's saying is that Pharaoh is the sea dragon who owns the Nile River. So the symbol of the water that is put on the ground that turns to blood is the symbol of God telling Moses, you got Pharaoh. This will be the defeat of Pharaoh, the sea dragon. Are you still with me? What about the second sign? What about this leprosy thing? That he put his hand, there's a leprosy. You see, in Leviticus, whenever you have this disease, this is not really Hansen's disease. This is like eczema. Anything that's, that's not really good in your skin. Uh, something that looks scaly. So when you go to the book of Leviticus and you go to the priest, the priest will examine you and he sees scales in your skin. He'd say, you're unclean. You cannot go to God. You cannot approach a temple. You're unclean. What does this scaly thing represents? That you're becoming like the offspring of the serpent. Scales. So these three signs is all about God telling Moses, you got Pharaoh here. I have authority over Pharaoh. And you have to make a choice. Either you stay as a convert or you become a disciple. You know, but Moses did not stop there. Moses started his protest. In verse 10, he said, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am but slow of speech and of tongue. That is baloney. That's not real. That's not true. When Stephen just said he was raised in Egypt. He knew Egyptian power. He was top of the class. He was, he was mighty in deeds and words. Moses was just giving excuses to God. He was probably thinking, maybe God forgot because it's been 400 years. Maybe God forgot. Maybe God forgot because it's been 40 years since the first, the last time I was in Egypt. But you see, God doesn't forget. And then he said in verse 13, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. 
I mean, of all the excuses, this is the worst. This is like an objection to God. Lord, you're calling me? Oh man, please send someone else. In verse 14, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. We were talking about Genesis 15, where it says, God will allow the fourth generation to come back to the land of promise until the sins of the Amorites have gone to the full. That means in 400th year, the, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against the inhabitants of Canaan. At this point, it's now kindled against Moses. Why? Because he refuses to accept his call. Here, I will say, how dare you, Moses? How dare you say no to God? I mean, we go and pray to God. We go and pray and say, Lord, why have you been, why have you kept telling me no, no, no to all my prayers? And yet at this point, Moses was saying, no, God, I don't want to go. Send someone else, not me. I know what you want. I know the calling, but not me anymore. You see, Moses was a picture of a convert, not a disciple. A convert watches along, watches what God does. A disciple participates in the kingdom of God. A convert is content just to watch and sit what God is doing. A disciple is someone who's hungry like Mary, who would rather sit at the feet of Jesus, not miss a thing. A convert would listen to Jesus, and at the end of the day, he would go home. A disciple is someone who would listen to Jesus and stay. What are you? Are you a convert or are you a disciple? Beloved, our calling is not for conversion. Our calling is for discipleship. Our calling must be a lifestyle. And we need this sort of fanaticism if we are to follow Jesus. If you remain a convert, here's what I know. You will wander aimlessly in life. You will have no purpose. But if you decide to become a disciple, decides to devote your life, your career, your passion, your, your resources, everything that you have, then you will have your purpose. You will have to embrace your call. And there's one response to this sermon today. Are you going to remain as a convert? Or will you respond to the call of discipleship? Here's what Jesus said. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. This is God telling you wherever he's calling you to do You've got to devote everything for Him. Become a disciple. Let me pray for you. I pray that God is talking to you right now. I pray that the Holy Spirit will be whispering in your ears. I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. And if you're someone who says, I'm a convert, I've been living like a convert, but I want to be a disciple, I want to make a decision to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with all my life, with everything I got, pray for me, Pastor. Would you slowly raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much over there. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that even though we are not worthy to be part of this call, of this mission, of this kingdom building, but you have called us it's not because we're qualified. 
It's because you have qualified us to do things. It's not because we are, we have the power to do things. It's because you have empowered us with the Holy Spirit. Father, you've seen our hearts today. You saw all those people who have raised their hands and who are standing up for you. Father, I pray that you will look down upon us. I pray that you will give your anointing to us. I pray that as we present ourselves to you and volunteer our life and devote ourselves, Father, I pray that you will give us your power, give us your anointing, give us the inspiration that we need so that we can embrace this calling of really devoting our lives fully to you, in submission to you. And so we call you, Lord, our Lord. You're not just someone who will do our bidding. You will be our Lord. And everything that we do is subservient to you. We submit to you. And because you are Lord, we kneel down. We bend our knees in submission to your will. Let our hearts say, not my will, but yours be done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.